It's Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them and whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let all the faithful pray to you while you may be found. Surely the rising of the mighty waters will not reach them. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me the songs of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye on you. Do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, but must be controlled by bit and bridle, or they will not come to you. Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the one who trusts in him. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing, all you who are upright in heart. Good morning, church. Uh, it's Nick here. I'd like to start by asking you uh, a question. What do you do when your conscience is troubled? You know, the kind of moment I mean when you're, you're feeling bad and your conscience keeps bothering you about something. What do you do in those moments? I think it was Mark Twain that said, a clear conscience is a sure sign of a bad memory. We all have these moments, don't we, where our conscience is troubling us. What do you do in those times? As a society, we've figured out that uh, what we do with a troubled conscience is actually quite important. There's a whole body of research which shows that a, a troubled conscience can have a serious impact on your health. There are studies which show that uh, it can affect your immune system, can be more prone to illness. There are studies which show uh, that suppressed guilt can make physically demanding tasks seem harder to you, can make it feel like you are yourself heavier can have a, a physical impact on us what we do with a troubled conscience really matters it seems so what do you do how do you respond when your conscience is troubling you if you're anything like me my temptation is to ignore it to try and distract myself with something else try and push it out of my mind it never really works well in psalm 32 we see a better way. In Psalm 32, what we have is one man, King David's experience of a deeply troubled conscience. We're going to see how it felt for him. We're going to see what he did about it and how eventually he came to taste the joy of God's forgiveness. And Psalm 32 holds up David's experience so that we can learn from it and so that we too might taste and experience that joy of being forgiven when our conscience is troubled. So a brief word in terms of how the psalm fits together. In verses 1 and 2, David will tell us that forgiveness from God is wonderful. In verse 3, three to 5, he will tell us that uh, denying our need for forgiveness is draining. Denial is draining. Then in verse 6 and 7, he draws out the implication of that, which is that we should take refuge in God himself where we can. And then in verses 8 and 9, God addresses us directly. 
and invites us to come to him willingly. So those are our kind of headings that we're going to work through. Forgiveness is wonderful. Denial is draining. So take refuge in God and come to him willingly. Let's dive in then at verses 1 and 2. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and in whose spirit is no deceit. It's telling us here that forgiveness is wonderful. It sounds like he's repeating himself over and over again, isn't it? But actually, each phrase he uses has a slightly different shade of meaning. It's as if he's holding forgiveness up to us like a jewel and turning it around so that we can see the light shining through it from slightly different angles. He uses uh, three uh, words for our guilt or sin, and then he matches those with three words for our forgiveness. We'll just think about each. Firstly, then, our sin. Uh, The first word he uses there, verse one, is transgression. This word uh, has a sense of breaking a known boundary. It's the fact that I do things that I know are wrong. It's transgression. Next word in the second half of the verse there, sin. This word has a sense of uh, missing the mark, that I failing to live up to an ideal. It's the way that I, I know the man that I should be and I keep falling short. The next word he uses there in verse two uh, is translated as sin again. It's actually a different word in the Hebrew. It's translated as iniquity in verse five. This word carries the sense of uh, twisting. It's the way that my inner selfishness can take a good thing and twist it. Well, it can take something good like sex and twist it into lust or money and twist it into greed or free time and twist it into self-indulgence. It's my inner selfishness that twists things. These are three kind of pictures of our our guilt. And the Bible would say that however we feel about it, those three things are true of each of us. They stand between us and God. But those three pictures of uh, guilt are uh, matched by three beautiful pictures of forgiveness. So look down at verse one. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven. The word forgiven there has this picture of a burden being lifted. I don't know if you've ever been hiking with a heavy pack and you take it off and feel like you're floating, a burden being lifted. The next picture we get there, second half of the verse, sin being covered. The image here is of my guilt, my shame being exposed for all to see and then being covered over. My shame being covered third picture we get is in uh, verse 2, the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them. The picture here is of uh, debt. The the damage has been done. Uh, There's a bill that's got to be paid. It's hanging over me. It's my fault. And then someone else pays the bill. It's not counted against me anymore. So each of these little pictures carries a sense of relief, a burden lifted, my shame covered my debt paid what david is saying here is that to know that deep down in your soul to know this to experience this between you and god is wonderful blessed is the one 
whose transgressions are forgiven. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against him. David is saying that if you know this between you and God, you are blessed. You are to be envied. If you've got this, lucky you. That's what David is saying to us here. Being forgiven is wonderful. Now, the New Testament will make clear, Romans chapter 4, uh, that these verses, uh, they, they can be true for anyone today because of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the Lord Jesus who takes that burden off us onto himself as he dies on the cross. It's the Lord Jesus who is exposed so that he can cover us in his righteousness. It's the Lord Jesus uh, who paid our debts as he died on the cross. And for anyone that would come to him, this, this joy, this forgiveness between us and God can be ours. Forgiveness is wonderful. Now, if you're just tuning in and, 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 and you're kind of looking into Christian things, can I just ask, does that sound good to you? Would you like to taste that forgiveness for yourself? I mean, David is saying here that it is true blessedness. It is true joy to know this forgiveness. And for those of us that would consider ourselves Christians, can I just ask, do you remember how good it is to be forgiven? Have we forgotten that? It's so easy to do forgotten how good it is to know that between you and God your burden has been lifted your guilt has been covered and your debt has been paid if you know that lucky you lucky you forgiveness is wonderful now you might have noticed that I slightly skipped over the end of verse three let's have a little look at that together uh, I'll read the whole verse. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and in whose spirit is no deceit. This verse begins to show us the key, I think, to enjoying that forgiveness from God. If we would uh, be free from guilt, we must also be free from guile. We've got to stop kidding ourselves about our guilt, about how much we need God's forgiveness and David moves on now to, to talk about a time where he did try to kid himself uh, about his guilt and see how that works out for him this is in verse uh, three to five have a look down with me at what happens when I kept silent my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long for day and night your hand was heavy upon me my strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. What David tells us here is his experience of denying his guilt is draining. Now, if you look at his words there in verses three and four, that might sound quite extreme to us. You might look at that and think, well, I've never quite felt guilty um, in that kind of way, in such an extreme way. But I think we all do know something of what David faces here. I mean, even in everyday life, we know something of, of maybe you've got something wrong at work and you know that you need to admit it, but you really, really don't want to. Or maybe you've um, done something wrong at home and you know you need to confess it, but you really, really don't want to. I mean, in smaller ways, we, we know something of, of that feeling, don't we, of wanting to hide our guilt. And so I think even though David's example here is quite extreme, I think it's still instructive for us. Notice what David is doing in verse three. He responds to his guilt. He tries to keep it silent. He tries to stifle it, to ignore it. You know how that feels, don't we? 
feel guilty about something, I try and just push it out of my mind. But it doesn't work. See, the problem with, with suppressing guilt uh, for David here is that it's, it's a bit like pushing a beach ball underwater. It just pops up elsewhere. For David here, it seems to pop up in physical symptoms. David says, uh, in verse 3, his bones wasted away. In verse 4, his strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. I mentioned at the beginning that uh, it's a well-documented fact that suppressed guilt can have physical symptoms. And that's what David experiences here. Freud was not the first person to point out that suppressed guilt is a really bad thing. The Bible's been saying it for thousands of years. The Bible says here, of course. Of course it causes problems when we suppress our guilt. See, in the Bible, God is the spring of life. He is where we're meant to find refreshment, psychological and emotional refreshment. So if I'm cutting myself off from him, from the stream, well, then I'm like a tree dried up in the heat of summer, drained and dried. See, David can, can try and suppress his guilt, can try and ignore it, but that doesn't take it away. Only God can do that. And that's exactly what we see in verse 5. Then David says, I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. He comes clean and look what happens. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. See how simple it is? Just like that. You forgave the guilt of my sin. After, after these two verses of I was groaning and I was struggling and then I confessed and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Augustine wrote of these words, he said that barely is the word on David's lips before the wound is healed. God is so willing, he is so ready to forgive. As soon as David confesses. David's only regret here really is that he didn't confess sooner. See, denial is draining, but confessing, that is the, the gateway to the pleasures of God. I don't know about you, but as I read these words, it, it really challenges the way that I think of repentance and confessing. See, often when I'm feeling guilty, the idea of confessing, it, 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 it feels really bad to me. It feels like a step down. It feels like hitting rock bottom. But here in these verses, it's the opposite. It's denial that drags you down. Confessing that that is a step up. That is, that is the path to greater joy. That is the gateway to the pleasures of God. It's denial that's draining. Confession, that is the gateway to the pleasures of God. I wonder, is, is that how you think of confessing? Is that how you think of repenting? Forgiveness is wonderful. Denial is is draining. And so uh, verse 6 and 7, David moves on to kind of spell out uh, an implication of that, which is that we should take refuge in God while we can. Have a look down at verse 6 with me. Therefore, let all the faithful pray to you while you may be found. Surely the rising of the mighty waters will not reach them. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs uh, of deliverance. 
Notice uh, in uh, verse 6, this imagery of the rising waters. In the British Museum, there's an exhibit which shows uh, footage of the flooding after a tsunami, uh, the mighty rising waters uh, washing away a Japanese village. And you see people scrambling, desperately trying to find a, a hiding place, a place of safety from the mighty waters. Well, David here is encouraging us to, to take refuge, to find a hiding place in God himself. Look at that in verse 7. You, God, are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble. This is a terrible comparison, really, but I remember uh, a moment from my childhood where I got caught in a storm. We uh, were on a family cycling trip. You know, the kind of trip that only your dad's really enthusiastic to go on. He dragged us all out. And we're in the middle of this field and a storm rolled in. And I was just drenched to the bone. I was quite quite young. I was wearing a thin t-shirt, completely drenched to the bone. And we tried to find refuge. We tried to make a refuge out of our jumpers. Rubbish, didn't work. We tried to run to a tree and find refuge under the tree. Rubbish, didn't work. And then eventually, my mum beckoned me over and she opened my coat uh, her coat and I, I, I sort of cuddled into her and she wrapped her, the coat around me and I still remember kind of leaning in and hearing the rain patter on the outside of the coat. In that moment my mum was my refuge, it wasn't a place, it was a person, it was my mum and David here is saying find refuge not in a place but in God himself. A place to find refuge from my guilty conscience is in God himself. That might seem counterintuitive. When I feel guilty, my instinct is to run away from God. But David here says, no, run to him, find refuge in him. You may have noticed there's also a, uh, a sense of urgency here in verse 6. Do you see what it says? Therefore, let all the faithful pray to you while you may be found. While you may be found. That's a phrase that's used a number of times uh, in the Bible, also used in Isaiah chapter 55, verse 6. And it's always used to suggest that the opportunity to turn to God won't always be there. And we don't know when it will go. It's a phrase that the Bible uses to say, turn to God while you can. The only safe time for that is right now. Let all the faithful pray to you while you may be found. It may well be that there's somebody listening here this morning and you know that you are putting off repenting. And you know that there's something you should turn to God about, but you're just putting it off. If that's you, can I encourage you to, to, to hear verse 6? Let all the faithful pray to you, God, while you may be found. The only safe time to repent is right now, David would say to us. So take refuge in God while you can. At this point, the, uh, the tone slightly changes in the psalm. So far, it's all been a prayer from David to God. And in verse 8, it seems that uh, God starts to speak to address us directly and to give us an invitation. Have a look down at this invitation with me in verse 8. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. 
I will counsel you with my loving eye on you. Do not be like the horse or the mule which have no understanding, but must, must be controlled by bit and bridle, or they will not come to you. See, God here is uh, offering to, verse 8, have a look, he's offering to lovingly lead and instruct and guide us. But if we're going to enjoy that kind of intimate guidance from God, well, there's something we mustn't do in verse 9. Do not be like the horse or the mule. Don't be a donkey, it's saying. What's wrong with donkeys? Well, they have no understanding. They must be controlled by a bit and bridle. You see, a donkey is, uh, it's got to be controlled by force. It is too stupid to come willingly. God is saying here, don't be like that. And my aunt's got a, a donkey at her house in the countryside that she, you know, the uh, grandkids can have turns on it. It's lovely. Uh, it's great in many ways. Lovely animal. But one thing you can't do with a donkey, you can't counsel it. I couldn't sit down with my aunt's donkey and say, hey, look, long ears. Let's kind of just think about the relationship between you and my aunt for a minute. She, she gives you all this food. She gives you this lovely place to live. She always looks after you. Why not? Why not? Just next time she calls, go along with her. How about it? <laughs> you, can't, you can't do that. Right, a donkey is, is too stupid to go along willingly. And this verse is saying, don't be like that with God's. If you feel God calling to you, putting something on your conscience, go willingly. Turn to him willingly. It strikes me here that there are kind of two attitudes that, that a Christian might have to repenting. Kind of donkey-like repentance. That would be if I only repent sporadically and only under compulsion when it kind of really hurts and it's embarrassing and I have to kind of screw up my courage and I hope I don't have to do it again anytime soon. One kind of attitude to repenting. The other attitude would be to go willingly, to turn to God regularly, to be frank and honest with him about my sin, knowing and trusting that he is my refuge. These verses are encouraging us to do the latter. God is inviting us here to go to him willingly, to turn and repent willingly. Verse 10 and uh, 11 then, he really kind of summarises everything that he has said uh, so far in the psalm. Uh, verse 10. Many are the ways of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the one who trusts in him. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad you righteous. Sing all you who are upright in heart. He kind of sets two options in front of us here, really. Uh, verse 10, many are the woes of the wicked, kind of the way of woe. And what are those woes? Well, I think we've seen them already in verses three and four. I think David's talking autobiographically here. It's the woe of the burden of guilt. That's option one. Option two, 
second half of verse 10, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the one who trusts in him. Surrounded by God's unfailing love. And verse 11, singing songs of joy to the Lord. Now, what is the difference between those two ways? Well, it's not whether or not you're guilty. It's not whether or not you have a troubled conscience. The psalm assumes that everyone will. The difference between those two ways is whether or not you do verse 5. It's whether or not we come to him and confess. See, forgiveness is wonderful and denial is draining. So take refuge in God, come to him willingly. Confess regularly, freely, trusting and knowing that he is the one who lifts my burden, who covers my shame and who pays my debt for me. 